good internet. It's the Harvest the Colin Atrophy, and I am very happy to be bringing you episode 23 of Radio Harvester um, because I wanted to do this weeks ago, and then I got really sick. I got Lyme disease walking the dog in the woods, uh, and that shit sucks. Let me tell you, be careful. Check yourself for ticks. Uh, it's, a, it's it's awful. And then the antibiotics. Don't even get me started. Might be worse than being sick. Um, Anyway, I'm better now, more or less, and uh, so here's this episode. And the guest this month, I'm very excited about this interview, is Madeline Campbell. Um, she runs a recording studio, Accessible Recording. She tours with bands, doing live sound as well as tour managing. The live sound, I mean, all of it. I'm a disorganized person, and I find all those knobs very intimidating on soundboards, so I can't even imagine having the confidence and expertise to be able to stroll into a club with some dickhead who usually does the sound and be like, I'll take it from here. Like, I can't even fathom what that must be like. Um, and uh, what else? She does a zine called Women in Sound that's really cool, um, where she interviews all kinds of women and trans people and just like non-men, basically. But I think non-men in sound was a less charming name that have all kinds of roles in music making. Musicians, um, instrument builders, people that run recording studios, people that work soundboards, just all kinds of folks. It's super interesting. I'll put a link in the thing. We talk about it in the interview. Just check it out. Listen to Madeline talk. Um, so, where are you from? Like, where'd you grow up? I was born in Pittsburgh. Oh, no shit. Cool. But, uh, I moved away when I was only a few months old. Still good um, that you're my first Pittsburgh guest and you were born here. Yes, was born only a couple miles away from here. Great. Um, but moved to Raleigh, North Carolina when I was a baby and, and grew up there and spent my childhood and, and teenage years there and moved back to Pittsburgh after high school. I went to college in Here Pittsburgh. Here in Pittsburgh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I studied, went to music school at Duquesne, uh, and I'm still here. Yeah. I never really, like, made a... I never really, like, decided formally that I would, like, stay or go, but just been kind of... I don't know. Yeah. I, I kind think. of just take things as they come. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was... Growing up in North Carolina Rally, like that's like a hotbed of indie culture, right? Yeah, to some extent. I've you never know, really I, been there. I feel like I was kind of like, a, like on the peripheral, like out, on the periphery of observing a few different worlds. Like I, I grew up, um, like going to church every Sunday and like Whoa. singing in the church choir and. Um, that was like a really big part of my life Catholic? and like Episcopalian. Ooh, the better Catholic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I I feel like that was like a big a big part of my life and then um and then like when I got into my high school years, I started like my friends started making music. Mm-hmm. And so just like the the concept of like going to shows or like one friend had a really big basement and just right. like chill parents and so like they 
like he started hosting shows in his basement. Um, and uh, my my uh, first boyfriend when I was in high school took me to a show, this band, I think they were based in Raleigh. This, yeah, they were from Raleigh. They were called Logic Problem. Okay. And uh, Good name. That was like... What kind of music was it? Hardcore. Okay, cool. Yeah, it was, and it was just like nothing I had ever really seen before. And like, I don't even remember the band that well. Sure. But just like the act of like going there and, and seeing like at that time, Sorry State Records wasn't like a store. They were just this van that, like, they. I remember they just had this van that would like travel around. Oh, you know, I went there recently. I was just in like the, what is it called, the Triangle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple, like, a year or two ago, for the first time since I was nineteen, uh, and um, we stopped at Starry State, and I bought some weird like dollar bin seven. I always buy my friends' bands out of dollar bins because mm-hmm. like awesome. I can't. Even though I end up half the time putting them back in dollar bins or like just mailing them to the person that played on the record and being like, hey, do you remember this? Um, That's funny. But uh, yeah, I, I bought some weird, some weird, se- oh, you know what? I brought some seven inches by that a friend of mine that had just died had played on is what it was. Mm. But um, they, yeah, it's a cool store. I'm yeah. rambling because I didn't sleep well last night. <laughs> Sorry. I uh, Yeah, so I just like, I went, I don't know, I just started going to shows more in high school, and um, I don't, like, just being, I just remember being kind of, like, stunned by it because it was so different than, like, going to youth group and, like, sure. singing in the choir. Yeah. Like, there was this house uh, called GSS, which stood for, like, it was on Gorman Street, and it stood for, like, Gorman Street Sluts. And I just remember thinking, like, whoa. Like, yeah. just, like, even just, like, the use of the word slut was really cool. And, um, yeah, just so, so I, I felt, like, really, like, divide, just kind of, like, standing on the outside, like, looking yeah. at, like, these two different branches and, like, one that I knew, like, um, my parents were cool with and, and one that I knew that they, like, definitely wouldn't be. The church was the thing your parents were cool with. Yeah, they were and like then, down with yeah. that, and then, and then hardcore you know, shows. Not so much. Which is so like, much. I mean, people make a lot of jokes about how going to hardcore shows is not that dissimilar to church or whatever. Cause it's like everyone's singing together, <laughs> and like, you know, like especially like wingnut sects of Christianity, where like they don't have an actual. Um, like space, yeah. it's like we meet in each other's basements, totally. and we don't trust the government yeah um but yeah it's funny that those were like the two poles also it's funny for me like being punk obviously appealed to me to, i mean I don't, I don't know why i said obviously but it appealed to me to some extent because it's like transgressive or whatever mm-hmm. and i like the idea of being playful with um like societal norms but like the transgression of like I'm an offensive dude or like let me like Sid Vicious in a swastika shirt or whatever was never that compelling to me but like uh, like women's sexual independence was the one that I was like this is fucking dangerous in yeah. this way that really just like uh, like the lunatics or something where I was just like fuck this is what's dangerous you know and so it's like it's funny to 
hear you talk about this house called Gorman Street Sluts or whatever, and that being like the thing that really stuck out to you rather yeah. than whatever hardcore band you saw there. Because that's the thing that I think is, I think has always been since the 90s or whatever, been more compelling in punk um, yeah. than like the uh, freedom of a dude to do something, which is fucking boring. It's like <laughs> our whole culture is about the freedom of a dude to do something. Yeah. Totally. And it's interesting you say that because, like, I don't even think that, I don't even think until I said that out loud that I realized that, like, that was the thing that stuck with me most about that house. But, um, yeah, you know, I was hanging out with, with mostly dudes, like those, I, I, unfortunately, my, my instrument growing up, I played cello, Mm -hmm. and that's what I ultimately went to, to school for, but that wasn't very conducive to like playing in in the in the bands that I like thought were really cool but I was still like still playing um still playing a lot with friends and in yeah. a, a few different projects but then what's funny is like I I like right as I kind of feel like I was actually like getting to like to know people and like you know be a little bit more active and in, in that part of of Raleigh's music scene um i went to i moved i moved to pittsburgh to right. go to college to go to college yeah went to duquesne went to duquesne did that have to do with your like church upbringing no you went to a christian college no 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 it didn't have anything to do with that um i d- i just ultimately went like to whatever school would give me the most money sure um and i also really i really wanted to get out of raleigh i so i only applied to schools that were like far away like if it meant that I could could move far away and somewhere a little bit bigger right uh, so I went to Duquesne and did you have a sense of connection to Pittsburgh from having been born here I think so yeah yeah I think I did um, there's like so much that I feel like I don't even really remember that clearly like because I I don't know like what 17 year old knows what they want to do and yeah I don't remember where they want to go so yeah. so I don't know and and it's funny because it's not like I was really like I'm using air quotes, like, well-behaved, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I was, like, you know, I definitely wasn't, like, drinking or doing any drugs. I was kind of scared of all of that. Like, I think that's ultimately, like, one of the appeals of, like, going to shows and, like, seeing this kind of, like, lawless territory is yeah. that I really had, like... Like, I think I had, like, A, the fear of my mother instilled in me, but also, like, in hindsight, like, the fear of God. Sure. And so it was, like... uh I don't even remember where I was going with that. Um, yeah, so I was like really like, I was like, well behaved and, right. and and good. Um, but you were like on the peripheries of like a kind of DIY punk. Scene yeah, or and I think and I just wanted to like, I I think I just wanted to like go, go you know, I don't know, just wanted to leave, just right. get somewhere else, and um, yeah. So I ended up in Pittsburgh, and then and then things kind of shifted just into like. Um, being pretty dedicated to to music school and right. and the practice room and, and music theory and um, so it's like a four year BA kind mm, of thing yeah bachelor of music ba- but B, whatever the degree is called but I, I think know, what I but I do think that also like the music that I was that I was most focused on was all like 20th century and especially like the second half of the 20th century on which I do feel like kind of was like a my own continuation of like. Um, like listening to like getting like kind of dipping my toes in the pools of like hardcore and and harsh noise and right. um you know ambient music and yeah, just yeah, just yeah. anything different 
Um, like Arthur so. Russell or something? He played a cello, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. do I do love Arthur Russell. I got like really into John Cage. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, just again, a lot of stuff that I, it wasn't even necessarily like the, the, the content being created, but just like, like me thinking something was like really different or really sure. subversive or just something unfamiliar to me. So. Yeah. Yeah. I had like a jazz dad. And so right we would like the first time I ever drove in New York city, he got too drunk at a sunrise show that we went oh to and then like made me drive home, which was cute and funny but also like terrifying to drive in Manhattan I like only had a learner's permit you know oh my god um and like really cool and he used to drive a cab and he was just like you just gotta follow the current man you just gotta follow the current the road's just like a river (laughs) just look at the car in front of you and if it swerves you swerve and don't look at the lanes that's how accidents happen people look at the lanes because they're tourists and I was just like whoa and that's honestly the best advice I've ever heard for driving in Manhattan it works so well I feel really grateful that like I got kind of just shoved into that as a young person because I yeah I love just like whipping a car around Manhattan. But anyway, the point is, he was taking me. I was like into peace punk and hardcore and whatever, and like some really corny pop punk as a teen. But then also I'd be going to see like Milford Graves or John Zorn or whatever with my dad, and I remember seeing uh, this like John Zorn Akua Mori is that her name from DNA? Yes, performance at. Um, Columbia that he took me to that was like it like didn't even sound like music like I was like what is this Mm -hmm. and Zorn was up there in like those orange like hunter camo shorts with like a napalm death long sleeve t-shirt wearing like a talus like a Jewish prayer scarf underneath like that tassels were hanging out from his shirt and he was such a dick to everyone during the Q&A and I was like man, these, like, genius men kind of suck. But Akua Mori was just, like, so quiet and cool. And I was like, God, she's so much better. But, yeah, like, that shit is so fat. Like, the... I feel like the... Um, the, like, parallel paths between um, contempt, like, 20th century experimental composers and punk that maybe were more opaque to me as a young person. But now, like, you go see... Uh, what's his name from... Uh, from uh, Pussy Galore, uh, Bill Orkut or mm-hmm. something. You know what I mean? And he's mm-hmm. playing with like all these weirdos making just bizarre ass music. And yeah. it's, or like Tara Jane O'Neill put out that record of tape loops. Yeah. You know? And it's like, it's so cool. I love it so much. That's totally. really rad. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine based in, I think like Western, like like Hampshire, mm-hmm. uh, I guess Western Mass, mm-hmm. uh, just released or is like touring on a new documentary that he and some friends made about Milford Graves. So. Oh, cool. Oh, I saw, uh, I saw, I read a thing in the times about that documentary. Yeah. It's so cool. You know, the person that made it. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, uh, one of the, one of the most amazing shows I've ever been to was seeing him open for the Sunra orchestra at the, this like weird outdoor, I think it was like Battery Park Jazz Fest or something. It was like something for white yuppies, essentially. <laughs> you know, and it was like... Um, Milford Graves was playing with John Zorn, actually, and they had never met. I remember that was like this thing that really stuck with me as important, like an important detail as a 15-year-old when I saw it. They had never met. They had had three 15-minute phone conversations to like guide their performance, but then they just kind of did it. And um, And again, like... Uh, 
so much of my experience seeing John Zorn play shows is that whoever he's like he seems to perform with cool people and seem like kind of a dick but like um I don't really remember anything he did except for that I was like oh this is like um when you completely remove any sense of humanity from music <laughs> is what he's doing on his saxophone which is like cool and technically proficient and weird yeah. and like it did, it did have emotional resonance but but Milford Graves had this wild drum kit and he was like just banging along on it and w at one point he got up and he started doing this like um like kind of gorilla pantomime and he was like kind of loping around with his arms out you know and like his posture bad and he was scratching his head and shit and it was like for me as a you know a child basically it was really insane to watch because he was like one of very few black people in the room at yeah. this jazz performance and he was doing this like kind of outsized kind of minstrel thing or whatever and he had said he had his drum set on the floor in front of the stage and then Zorn was standing above him on the stage when he was playing and then um it was real like a uh, pre-lightning bolt kind of like <laughs> but then he was like kind of dancing around back and forth in front of the crowd and then he just walks up to some guy in the front row and like turns his back to him and leans over and just picked the guy up on his back and started like hopping around and it was this real it went from like uh performatively antagonistic to like directly antagonistic in this yeah. way that no um like shock rock like uh i never saw anal cunt or whatever but i definitely saw a lot of bands that were like yeah this is the cool way to do it yeah. and it was like none of that ever felt as legitimately scary in terms of like i don't know what's gonna happen now yeah uh as seeing him pick that businessman up on his back and just like start to walk away with him you know it was like is the show even gonna happen? Zorn is just still making these weird like like screeches on his uh, saxophone. It was like so fucking wild. Yeah, he's really amazing. That's, a, what an incredible image. Yeah, it was unbelievable. I mean, I'm so, I complained a lot about my jazz dad as a kid, but I'm so <laughs> grateful for my jazz dad now because I got like a real, even, I think like we went to see stuff that he didn't even like, but he thought, because he's more of like a conventional dad jazz jazz dad where he just wants to listen to like Russ on Roland Kirk and John Coltrane or whatever and yeah. Miles Davis but he would take me to weirder shit because I think he thought that's what I would connect to more which I really appreciated yeah oh I thought I heard a noise happen. oh that was mine oh don't worry um but yeah we got off track your friends made the Milford Graves documentary we don't this interview doesn't have to be me telling anecdotes most of the time no I love that <laughs> that's an amazing that's that's a really amazing Image and yeah, again, I I think like of, of all these different like kind of like I don't know these different like phases or different like glimpses into into various genres that is kind of like the one common denominator, just like it being that feeling of like being so uncertain about like what's about to happen, whether it's like I'm like in the in the this like pit in a basement like oh my god am I gonna get like my face punched or right. like or like wait is the show happening because Milford Graves literally just carried this dude in the audience so it you know it's right. not, not that it's like not that I'd put those on the same um in the same place necessarily but but yeah I I, I think I spent like my teen years and and my college years mostly just like 
being excited by anything that there was like an element of uncertainty or kind of like lawlessness or, or, you know, anarchism too. How do you navigate that as a sound person? This seems like a really good time to, you know what I mean? Yeah. If shit is going like off the walls and creating this experience of uncertainty for the audience, what is that? What is your role in that? Right? Because you, just to preface a little bit, the way I know you is that you have done... You do a zine called Women in Sound where mm-hmm. you interview women who do uh, like recording and work soundboards and then you have toured with a bunch of friends of mine doing sound for them and mm-hmm. like also with many people that are not friends of mine that are just famous musicians who hired you. Um, so what's that like for you on like the back end to be like having to facilitate that but also like I bet it must be stressful sometimes if like shit's going bananas yeah and I think I I think the last tour I did was this was like really um something that that I thought about a lot um and it's just I guess like in a nutshell I just have to tell myself at at the start of every show like let the show happen Uh uh-huh you know I can't get in the way of it um I'm really there to to set them up, to set the artists up so they have what they need to perform. And then I'm trying to be more hands-off with things. Okay. You know, I kind of just want to let it happen. Um, And I think, you know, I I haven't been touring for, for all that long. And so I... I don't know. Sometimes I I'll... I'll pick apart, you know, just like these tiny little movements in, in fader level and of, of every track and then take like really copious notes uh, on on the artist's set list about like where things need to be mm-hmm. um, for each different song. Um, and that I, th- I think that's all well and good and, and that can be really helpful. But yeah, at the end of the day, like every set is different and right. I kind of have to just let it happen. You know, in, there's like a technical side of things and then the creative side of things. And um, I, it took, it's, took me and is taking me a while to, to feel more comfortable navigating the technical side of things. Just the fact that, you know, when you're on the road, you see different boards every night right. and you're in different spaces. And depending on whether you're with a headlining band or a supporting band, you get a sound check or you don't. And sometimes the the venues production teams are really helpful and awesome, and sometimes they're really terrible. So, um, and so it's kind of unpredictable. And so it's I feel like I'm just now getting to the point where I'm not sweating bullets about just the basics of doing mm-hmm. my job. I feel like I have a much better grasp on how things go, um, knowing that every tour is different. Uh, right. But. But yeah, this last tour I did with um, with No Joy from Montreal, that th- that was the tour that really um, made me want to focus more on the musical element of things and not just huh. thinking of, um, you know, EQing and compressing and, um, you know, like scheduled fader riding, like, oh, well, when this happens, I need to boost this 5 dB, you know. Right. Um, because I just realized that every, you know, they were playing the same songs every night, but it's a really guitar heavy, really shoegazy band. And 
So especially like the end of the set just gets like louder and louder and louder and um, and it, it was different every night. Sure. And uh, so I have to watch and go, you know, take their cues. And if yeah. if one person takes the spotlight, then follow them. And if not, then 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 do something, you know, react accordingly. Yeah, it's more so. like you're an active member of the band participating exactly. than like someone riding. Yes. Just like doing prescribed things. Totally. And yeah. I, I really do feel like I'm um, an active member of the band, you know, with, with most of the bands that I've, I've worked with, but especially that one. And um, I also work with a really wonderful artist based in Philly named Shamir, and mm-hmm. uh, he has a, an incredible voice, and that's really like the focal point of the set to me. And but just every night is is different, and and he can just like sing his ass off, and yeah. and so I, you know, before that scared me a little bit, and I was just like only thinking about like the threshold of the vocal compressor, and sure. now I'm just thinking more of like, like just letting the dynamic range of this person's amazing voice exist, and not not to be scared of it, but right. but to to just let it happen and. Um, yeah, so, so I guess in a nutshell, I would say I, I'm, I'm there to just support whatever is, whatever is going on, but I definitely don't want to get in the way of it. Right. So, I mean, it's as unpredictable to me as it is to the audience or even the band, what can happen in, in a set. So. Yeah. It's like playing bass. You just got to support what's going on but not get in the way. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, that's amazing. So just to backtrack a little bit, mm-hmm. um, it just seemed like the segue from the chaos to like reigning in the chaos was too perfect. But how did the transition from music school studying cello to I, you also have a recording studio. I yeah. like have a recording studio and I tour doing sound with bands. Like yeah. where did that, interest come in because it didn't seem like that was something you talked about in your no early... no when I so I I was studying cello in school and um I was really interested in, you know when I was in high school and started playing with bands we would do really rudimentary recordings and mm-hmm. um I I've I've always been quite a quite a documentarian whether it's like really intensive journals or uh taking pictures, you know, photos of everything. Um, I have like a lot of different uh, cassettes, you know, just of like me kind of, I guess you would just call it like an audio journal, just like talking through different years of my life. So I've always been like um, pretty enamored with just documenting in general. So I was really taken with uh, recording uh, from, from when I first started playing music more casually with friends. Um, but not not in any serious way. It wasn't like a, a light bulb moment where I was like, I've got to do I, this is what I want to do with my life. And right. um, but when I was in in college, I interned at a recording studio um, in Pittsburgh. And uh, it's still around. It's in a different building. Um, I I don't even like mention their name Fair because enough. because it was. Because I don't like them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't like it. them. Uh, but I, but I, um, you know, it was like kind of just diving into, to a, a big, to a big studio and um, lots of different gear and and lots of different recording sessions happening. And that's kind of where I learned even just the difference between recording and mixing and mastering and 
That's where I, I started uh, getting my feet wet in Pro Tools. Um, yeah. I would just take on like pretty boring but helpful ultimately uh, editing jobs for one of the engineers there. And, and it was also, it was a really chaotic environment um, in several ways. And, and one of which is like, uh, it wasn't a very like, helpful learning environment it was kind of like if you have a question then you just need to figure out the answer mm -hmm. and not like um there wasn't really any element of like mentorship or or nurturing so i was kind of just like trying to figure out all this all this shit as i was as i was going along and i would say that i still am now um hey buddy come here baby boy <laughs> the dog for the listeners my dog my very cute dog is uh who i'll post a picture of on instagram the day that I put this podcast out so you can see him if you haven't already <laughs> is whining right now go outside come on go lay in the sun you love the sun you're very cute yeah. <laughs> you come back in when you're ready okay the water's out there life is good out there yeah you can oh sorry you're just okay. like blocked in by this door all right you're good you lay where you want. Sorry to interrupt. No, actually. No, no, it's fine. It's beautiful. That dog is amazing. He is so worth it. Um, um, so you, I mean, like putting in the hours doing like the drudgery, mm -hmm. I think in like the non-romantic way to get to the like kind of newer theme of this podcast, which is about discipline and work and artistic practice is like, I think the thing that like in a field that maybe is like perceived as a trade in some ways more than an art form even if it is like sure. I think very important to realize the creative aspects of a sound person's participation in a band like we just elaborated on but it's like I think there's a lot there's a lot there's less of a notion that like you're going to be struck by inspiration from uh the divine for how to do sound than you know what I mean and so like the the work ethic I think is more built yes. in right Totally. I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, yeah, and I was actually just like going through uh, I, uh, one of my hard drives the other day looking for something that I recorded like four or five years ago and was just like going through all the, like saw all these different folders of, of different projects and I honestly don't even remember like three quarters of them probably because it was just like such terrible music but... <laughs> You know, but like, you know, if people have money, then they right. can go to a fancy studio. Sure. And, um, you know, it was a really big space and, and it was mostly like people from the suburbs who were like hobbyist musicians, but like had nice jobs and just could pay a lot of money and like record something for fun. And Like that guy that um, owns Madison Square Garden? I don't know anything about him. Oh, dude, the guy that owns Madison Square Garden, he's like, I think he inherited Madison Square Garden from his dad. Like cool. Straight up that style. <laughs> and he's like, he owns, maybe he owns the Knicks too. He's like, owns like a sports team, I think. The thing about him that's just like a funny, like, is this real life or one of Sam McFeeter's novels kind of thing is that um, he has like a, like a, um, hard blues band like a 12 like a just a dirty down down and dirty 12 bar blues of course band of course he does that he he has like opened for bob dylan 
he's open for, you know, like the list of who he, I think he, I was going to say I think he opened for Prince, but I bet Prince wouldn't let that happen. Um, yeah, I can't imagine. But he's like, he owns the venue, and so he has his like 12 Bar Blues Jammer Band open for all these, you know, kind oh of renowned <laughs> acts. It's really ridiculous. It makes sense. Yeah. yeah. No, it totally, I, I believe that. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Um, but that was actually kind of one of the one of the reasons among many why I ended up parting ways from that studio um, in early 2016 uh, is because uh, no one that I know and care about and none of the bands that I was listening to um, could afford to be there or really had interest in like going right. to a, a gigantic studio. But by being there, I was kind of just making myself inaccessible to anyone oh, shit. that I that I wanted to record. Uh-huh. Um, so I left, um, just like took all my hard drives, gave my keys back, um, had really no gear of my own, uh, certainly no money because you don't really make much money by interning at a recording studio right. and working part-time at a restaurant. Um, but uh, yeah, so that, so all of 2016 um, was spent recording people in um, their garage or their bedroom or my bedroom or church or just any space. What were you recording um, on? I uh, was recording, I had one eight channel interface, uh-huh. um, a Focusrite inter- interface. Uh, and I had, right before I graduated from college, um, I bought a version of Pro Tools with my student discount, so I got it for discount. got yeah. it for pretty cheap, and that's what I still have on on my laptop, and it's still, you know, still and works. And the eight-channel interface just plugged right into the laptop. Yep, it was oh, just a wow. FireWire interface. I had a couple of Shure SM57 mics, really nothing beyond that. Um, but yeah, and a few, again, a couple pairs of headphones. Really, one for me, and then one for anyone else. So I didn't even have speakers when I was recording people. Everything was just done over headphones. Whoa. Yeah, it was. It it went from yeah. from uh, pretty nice to to pretty raw. But I also feel like I was connecting more with like the human element of recording uh-huh. than I ever had before, and I was more concerned with. Um, you know, like how the performances were going rather than like time alet- time aligning drum hits to meet a click track. And, right. Um, and it was fun. It was, I, I had a lot of fun that year and I, I slowly started to, I took a small loan out and I slowly started to buy some recording equipment uh-huh. and um, uh, signed a lease on a very small studio space in the Bloomcraft building, mm-hmm. uh, right above Babyland, and um, really dove right in. I think I, in hindsight, that was probably a premature move to just dive into to having a space of my own uh, because there's so much that I didn't know about building out a space properly. Sure. But I still just wanted like a headquarters, like wanted like a place to put all my stuff, wanted a place where people could come, yeah. where my overhead was much lower than, than uh, you know, an 8,000 square foot studio. And um, 
you know, I could work whatever hours I wanted to right. and not, you know, get like the 1 a.m. to 7 a.m. slot because that's when no one else was working. So there's a real Goldilocks element to it, right? <laughs> Where it's like you're in like the two plush, two big bed, and then you're in like the two sparse, you know what I mean? And then you finally settle down on the just right. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And I, and I, and I don't know that, um, you know, I don't know that it's that it's a just right yet. But I also am like not as concerned with that sure. anymore, just because I, I, I'm just realizing like every space has, there's there's pros and cons to every space, and, um, you know, just the fact that I'm in a shared building and there's two venue spaces on either side of me, dude, is that's a lot. I didn't think about that, yeah, yeah, that's like gonna limit the hours that you can, no matter how soundproof you're space is it's yeah. gonna there is a punk show going on right below you is gonna be totally you can't record totally but wow. i think it's also informed what i do in a lot of ways because yeah. i started uh i started focusing a lot more on mixing than i ever have before because uh-huh. that i'm not affected by right by outside you can have headphones sound. on mixing totally yeah. totally um, so that's so oh i remember what i was thinking so I interviewed my friend Golnar a while back, who's in that band In School. Okay. Um, and used to do um, coordinate maximum rock and roll, and she at the time was doing this magazine with some other PhD students um, called Bitarov, which was a magazine. It's a quarterly magazine about um, Iranian diasporic cultural production, right? So it's like other Iranian artists living outside Iran doing art shit, hmm. whatever that might look like. And we were talking about putting the magazine together and she was like, yeah, when we first started, everyone was like really concerned with all these questions about how to do stuff to the point that the magazine almost didn't come out. And I think, I think because I've, I grew up in punk and like DIY and I never worry about that stuff. I've always just been like, no, no, we'll just do it and we'll figure it out. Yes. It's like, that's what I'm thinking of really strongly when you're talking about, like, yeah, sure, it might have been preemptive to get your studio space when you did, but maybe you never would have gotten around to it if you didn't just do it. You know what I mean? And I For think sure. there's a real beauty to um, just, like, plunging ahead and just figuring it out as you go. Totally. I, it makes me think of this... Um this really awesome zine that I've been subscribing to for a couple years. Um, do you know Art News? Based in, she's based in Oakland now, but she has a really awesome zine called Kerbloom, and it's a letterpress printed. She's been doing it for like maybe like 22 years at this point. No shit, I don't know anything about this. I'll, this I'll lend crazy. you some copies, yeah. but it's awesome, and and it's just she's an incredible writer, and it's just this really beautiful. Uh, Kind of reflection of, of of different things going on in her life, and and there was one, like right as I was like, deciding whether or not I wanted to like move forward with this space. I read this, read one of her issues, and it had this Ray Bradbury quote in it that I can't even remember. It was something about like just jumping off a cliff and then like figuring out how to fly, and I think that's kind of been like my mo in a lot of ways. Like sure. same thing with touring. Like when I got my first invite to 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 go on a five-week tour um i was i had no idea what i was getting who into. was the band no joy okay based in montreal tour? that was the first tour i ever you did ever did and had you been doing sound at shows locally yes until that point i had done sound at a few small venues um around pittsburgh 
but I'd never done, I didn't, I didn't really understand it, like at all the culture of touring. Um, and, you know, didn't know anything about like advancing shows and, you know, just like the, like working with a supporting band versus a headliner and also sure. didn't know like any of these boards that I was working on. Yeah. So I got the, I got the, um, a text from, from my friend who is their mastering engineer and, you know, she said, is this something I would be into? And, and I kind of just said, yeah. And, and that's all to say that, you know, everything that I, that I, uh, do, I think that's been a, a kind of a common denominator is just like saying yes and then figuring it out as I go, which maybe sounds irresponsible, but I, uh, as I think I've, I don't think I have been irresponsible with it. So sure. So it's, it's not always the most uh, practical way to do things, but it's kind of just my nature. Yeah. Also, like ultimately, not that like people doing small tours are um, irrelevant or their art is unimportant, but like ultimately, even on a big tour or whatever, not that art is unimportant, but ultimately the stakes are pretty low mm -hmm. if you fuck up. Right, like if a show goes bad and then the band fires you and just uses the club sound people from there the rest of the tour, or you know what I mean? There's yeah. like the no one's gonna die. Yeah, um, that's so funny you, you know say what I mean? that. Yeah, the, well, the first tour that I did, that's exactly what. Uh, so the band that I was with, No Joy, was supporting uh, Quicksand, uh -huh. and it was their first tour in a long time, um, and they were awesome, and they're their tour manager and, and front of house engineer was just so chill and like so funny and so nice and like a pretty pretty wild guy but he um like there was one show we had the show in Atlanta and uh the house crew there was was pretty shitty and I just got like so so frustrated and so annoyed at how my sound check went and I felt like I wasn't like getting anything I needed from them and and so afterwards he like pulled me aside and was like, Madeline, like, like these are rock and roll shows. Like everything's fine. Like if this, if like all of this just burns down at the end of the day, like we're all fine. Like this is just yeah. fun. And it was, it was like as cheesy as it sounds, it was kind of like a light bulb moment. Like, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's true. Uh, so yeah, it is, it is, uh, it is something to definitely to remember in the stressful moments. Like, this is ultimately this is really fun right and like and that's not to say that it's not important that someone the like hours of organizational and creative energy that go into booking a tour shouldn't be respected and valued but like I think holding those two things at the same time where it's like yes this is important I'm going to treat it with respect and do my best but also if my best sucks it doesn't really matter <laughs> yeah Totally. Yeah. Totally. And I was just, uh, I, it's funny you say that because I was just on um, on a phone call this morning with, I'm going on tour with a band that I've, I've not toured with before and I'm tour managing them for the first time. As well um, as doing sound? As well so as front of house sound. That's like, tour manager is like, you make sure they get up in time kind of style? Tour manager is kind of like, you are the point person for anything. You deal, you advance the shows. Uh, what does advance the shows mean? It, when you advance the show, um, it's generally done over email, and it's like you're basically like the representative from the band that's getting in touch with the representative from each venue, 
and you can ask, it's a lot of different questions like who is our contact for the day of the show? Who are mm -hmm. we settling with? What are your venue tech specs? Here are, here's our stage plot. Right. Are you going to take a percentage of our merch sales? Uh, what is your Wi-Fi password? Uh, what are, how are the, how many guest list spots do we have? What's our hospitality rider looking like? Whoa. So just like there's so many different questions that yeah. go into everything. Um, so you do that for each show. So tour managers do that. Um, they uh, take care of like accommodations, like where are we staying at the mm -hmm. end of the night? How, what vehicle are we driving? Are we renting backline? Um, they do a, they do a lot of different stuff. Keep track of all the finances. Right. Like every time you pay, like when you when you I don't know if you're familiar probably are when when you're like leaving Chicago or going to Chicago there's like 15 different tolls and they're all like a dollar and it's super annoying but yeah. you have to save each of those receipts and log it all into a spreadsheet and then uh -huh. pass it along to the managers so it's a lot of different stuff if there's press stuff happening like if you're doing a photo shoot or an interview before a right. sound check that kind of thing uh. so it's a lot. It's a lot of details. Yeah, that is um, a lot of details. And it really does make a difference, I think, because I've I feel like I've been very fortunate that I've only worked with really awesome tour managers. Yeah. Um, do you know Amanda Bartley? I don't she, think so. She was Waxahachie's tour manager, and she's playing in Swearin now. Okay, I'm she's, sure I've met her then. She's awesome. Yeah. I, I was just think, thinking of tour managers that that I know that you that you might know. Um, or Fiona Campbell. She she drummed in Vivian Girls uh -huh. and. Um, she's Shamir's tour manager so yeah. I feel very lucky that I've been with some really awesome tour managers but it can also like if you do a bad job it can really you know ruin things too so yeah so I'm uh, going on tour with a band called Cherry Glazer based in um, LA oh they're great yeah yeah I'm excited uh, and they are opening for um, we're doing a string of shows with Against Me uh, Lord Huron and, and Portugal the man and um, so yeah I was just talking with uh, their managers this morning and, and uh, are those big what kind of clubs is against me playing in 2018 so in those shows we're doing in New York one is at House of Vans in New York oh whoa yeah okay that makes sense uh, the Portugal the man show in Pittsburgh we're actually doing a show in Pittsburgh we're doing at Stage AE uh -huh. two of the shows we're doing whoa. are yeah that's a giant place isn't it it's the big I think it yeah, it might be the biggest venue I've done so far. It's like 5,500 capacity. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, it's a lot. So, um, yeah, and I know a couple, I noticed that a couple venues, I don't even remember the cities, but the venue is just House of Blues in in various places. That's nuts. So, <laughs> yeah, so, um, so I feel like this is kind of another instance of like, like their managers, you know, asking me like have you tour managed before and me saying nope I haven't uh, but here's here's what I have done and uh -huh. and them luckily being really uh, awesome and and open to working with me and, and me not really knowing what to expect but feeling scared but kind of just diving into it and and uh, I don't know we'll see yeah. we'll see how it goes but yeah I don't even remember where that started doesn't matter it's all very <laughs> exciting Hopefully. Um, yeah. Tell me about the zine. When did you get the? When did you start doing the zine? Pretty uh, Shortly after I started working in a recording studio. So like you're still in college at this point, right? You're interning. Yes, I was still in college at this point, and I was interning, and 
Um, it took me a couple years to get the first issue out. Sure. But the it wasn't. It was a really chaotic environment. Just like it. Like I was the only woman, and it wasn't even like so much that I was treated poorly for for because I was a woman, but it was just always pointed out to me that I was the only woman, uh-huh. and it was like such an anomaly. Um, or like people were like, or even like the really well-intentioned, like, oh, it's so awesome that there's like a woman here, you know, which is kind of like, I, there's a lot of us, like I'm, I'm not the only one. It's like this really weird erasure of just like women in the field. Yeah. Um, I worked, um, security in a nightclub for a while. And I remember this coworker telling me he was really into chick empowerment. And I was like, and he was like. He was a very oh sweet God. dummy and like like went to school through eighth grade, was like a speed freak, was on a lot of drugs and was mm-hmm. just like I think just like not the most articulate person. And like so I don't think you know I wanna come to his defense a little bit and just yeah. be like that dude really meant well and just yeah. didn't have the language. But also the fact that that's the language that he was able to come up with, um, Regardless of meaning well, even if it's not an indictment of him, which it to some extent is, it's an indictment of like all of rock club culture, right? Yeah. And that whole world. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. That this like tender uh, drug addict that I knew was like, yeah, I'm really into chick empowerment shit lately. You know, and it's just like, do you, can you hear yourself? Yeah. It's pretty bad. It's, yeah. It's, and I, I think that's like, I think that that guy is a lot of guys, uh, yeah. many of which who um, definitely uh, have more resources and were not speed freaks, you know, yeah, like yeah. people who I think view themselves as um, really, uh, I, I don't know, like woke dudes. So, sure, yeah. But, yeah, so I, I just remember feeling like really desperate to just connect with um other people in in recording who who weren't dudes and um when i and i went to i went to a conference um in 2012 in uh tucson and it was um it was the Tape Op magazine oh, conference. Oh, no cool. Yeah, and I saw this really awesome woman there, Catherine Vericoli, who's still a friend of mine, um, and she uh, owns an all-analog studio in uh, Phoenix. And she was on this panel talking about um, like analog commitment in the age of digital undo sure. in recording. And just like seeing her talk, she was really like the first woman that that I saw who was like talking just from the perspective of being, you know, an engineer and not like a woman in music or something, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I reached out to her right away, really just like, like, hey, could we like be friends? Yeah. Um, and uh, told her that, I, that I'd really wanted to ask her a few questions and she was really open to it. And um, so kind of one by one, just I started doing a little bit of research and then realized like it's really not hard to find how many how many people are are active in this field and have been for a long time who are, oh. <laughs> 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 are not dudes and uh yeah yeah i um i got i bought a 
a record that band Liturgy. I bought one of their okay. albums and uh, saw that it was mastered by um, Heba Kadri, mm-hmm. and immediately was like, "Who is that? Is who, who is she? I want to know about right. her." And um, and just like Googled her name and saw that she was mastering all of these incredible albums. Sure. Um, and uh, so like reached out to her and was basically just like, "I've been." I've been just trying to connect with as many as many women in the field as I can, and um, you know, like this is just kind of how I'm feeling and and what I'm going through, and I just want to. There aren't really any women, you know, around me, you know, in my area doing what I'm doing, or at least that I know of, and and so I decided after I talked with a few people that I wanted to to kind of formalize it all into a zine, and um, yeah, the interviews took place really slowly. But it was a, a mix of uh, recording engineers, mixing engineers, mastering engineers. Um, uh, I remember a DJ, um, uh, one artist uh, who was a, a really special friend. Do you know More Mother? Yeah. Kame? Yeah, Kamei's in the first issue. And, and she's, I, I think she's like a, a genius. She's amazing. But um, yeah, so I asked a friend of mine um, if she would do illustrations mm-hmm. of of all of the the people included, and she did, and, and they looked great. And Who did the illustrations? For the first issue, um, the illustrations are, are done by um, a really wonderful artist in Ohio named Ellie Dallas. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but then, so we, what's funny is we got, I got all this content, I got these illustrations and realized like, oh shit, I have no idea how to like actually make this into a zine. Right. Um, and so I had heard about this this woman in Pittsburgh, Maggie Negretti, who um, has a really a ton of really awesome zines and uh, is a, an artist and a teaching artist. And um, I just she was one of the people that started the Pittsburgh Zine Fair, I think in 2010. So I reached out to her, and and this was like a super easy job for her. It was actually like formatting everything together. Right. And so the three of us together um, released that first issue, and then pretty much right away it just started on the second one. Yeah. Um, and currently working on the sixth. And I don't know. I think it's like we were talking about. I never really set out like I'm going to make a zine and it's going to be like this and right. these are the people that will be in it let me start reaching out to them Yeah. Um, and it's going to be illustrated and it's going to be this many pages and here's my word count for each for totally. each piece and I just kind of started started doing it and um, uh, it's funny because I have I have subscribers now and I realized I I don't really have any like deadlines for when the next issue comes out yeah. because it's just so informed by like my life and right you're on um, tour all the time yeah. Like, yeah and I and usually like I you know I'm thinking a lot for the sixth issue about how the last couple tours will definitely be a big a big part of it but um yeah so it's funny because there's really it's you know each issue becomes more of of what I I guess I had hoped for it to be but then I also have to think that I didn't really know didn't really know what I was setting out to do but but yeah I think it's just it's just been you know like you were saying one of the like talking about the reasons why you do this podcast I I totally relate to that in why I started to reach out to other women in right in my field um if for nothing else then it's it's just to have a conversation with someone and 
um, you know, maybe realize like, I don't know, maybe feel a little bit of encouragement or just to hear what they do. And, yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, the fifth issue, I was really excited. Uh, Susan Rogers is included in it and she recorded Purple Rain no among, among other albums. She was Prince's engineer for a long time. Cool. And um, after that, decided to go and get a PhD and now teaches at, at Berkeley College of Music. And Fuck. Yeah, so, so it's, so I think I, it's, I love, I love zines because, um, I don't know, there's like, I, I just love having like a, a friend from high school who's like started, you know, making experimental music right next to Susan Rogers, who's like recorded some of the greatest yeah, totally. albums of all time. And so that's kind of why I don't really, I don't really set too many expectations for women in sound, but yeah. I just want to let it be what it is. And, and hopefully as time goes on, you know, I've started to have other people contribute to it, which mm -hmm. is really awesome um, and something that I would definitely like to keep going. I'd love for it to be a, many more voices yeah. um, than, than just me. So I'm really afraid yeah. this is going to come off as like a like gotcha kind of thing. And I don't mean it that way, but I'm just, I, I know this intuitively and I'm struggling to articulate it to myself, but like there is a difference between you making a zine called Women in Sound where you interview women that work in a recording studio and like the boring ass men that you worked with being like, it's so brave, it's so cool to see you. Yeah. Um, but both do hinge on like identifying you or this other person as a woman doing a thing. For and I wonder, sure. and I've been, I've been thinking about that in terms of like the women in rock debate that's ongoing among music journalism yes. where it's like, um, it's like ghettoizing or like uh, essentializing in a way that can be bad. But then like, like when I did the web series or whatever, the way that I addressed it was I only interviewed women musicians, but I just never mentioned that it was all women. Mm -hmm. And I figured I just let the, let the audience figure out, like I was like, and I think it's different for me, someone who is like at least perceived as a man. Um, I can't just be like, check out these. It's like, it, it, it's so easy for it to come off as chick empowerment, mm -hmm. coming out, like whatever I say. And so my means of dealing with that was just to like kind of um, assume, like I talk to musicians, period. They are all women. This is, I'm not making a distinction, but I'm also doing work to highlight that there are women in this world. Um, but I think there is like a real, I think there, you know what I'm trying to ask? I'm I, having such I a do. hard time even phrasing the question. I, I do, and I appreciate you you bringing this up because I, I think about this often. I think about this, um, you know, I think partially because I don't know what the answer is, but I, I absolutely have thought about changing the name of Women in Sound a lot over the last two issues especially because it's not well first of all it's not just women right in women in sound um and i think about this too having been involved with girls rock pittsburgh from the beginning what does that mean who's included in that who's not sure. you know like there's it's it's not as simple as as that and um i don't know i i think when I started it, and I didn't, I wasn't really considering like what should I call this. It just kind of made sense. Yeah, but it's I a great think name. the only other, my only other, um, like what I had, the way that I saw women reflected in, in like recording literature, uh, 
if at all, which it really wasn't at all, um, was just in a way that I feel like wasn't taking them seriously. Sure. So, yeah, so I, I, I kind of go back and forth because I do, I definitely do want to, like I, I think it's important to have intentional spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, Agreed. For, for people, but, but I also am trying to figure out what is the most accurate reflection of what it is, and and also you know I think there's one question that I asked in the first issue to this to this uh, musician Dottie Alexander who played in the band of Montreal, mm-hmm. and I remember I included it in the zine, and it's the only time I did this, and I really. I learned from it. I don't want to say I regret it, but I learned from it. But I asked her, like, if she, basically about like what challenges she had faced, you know, touring, like being a woman. Mm-hmm. And I just go back and forth. But I don't know. I I don't really. I try not to focus on that so much. I don't really bring up yeah. the or like, you know, I ask every person like, what advice would you give to someone who is wants to start doing what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how would you get started? How would you tell someone to get started? You know, I'm, I asked a few times, like, what advice would you give to a girl who wants to get started in, in doing what you're doing? And yeah. and I'm trying to slowly kind of um, figure out a balance of, like, holding that space. And, and I guess I should even back up, like, what is this space and who is it for? And and holding that space, but right. but also not letting it define things in a way that I don't want it to. Sure. Yeah. That's super rambly. No, no, I get it. I get it. I get what you're saying. And like to circle all the way back to the Luna Chicks, when I was like 13, me and my best friend Carly shared a like third generation tape dub copy of the Luna Chicks first record that our friend, even though we lived in New York where they were from, that the that tape had come from a flea market in Mexico City that our friend had, like the punk flea market that our friend had gone and gotten it at. And so it's like a third generation, whatever, shitty sounding dub. And it also had like a photocopy of a photocopy of the J card. Oh my God. (laughs) And so all we could see was their real intense makeup Mm. on the image of them. And Carly wrote them this letter that was like, hi, my name is Carly. I'm a 13 year old girl. And I think it's so brave that you guys are drag queens and you make (laughs) rock music. And they wrote Carly back. And I will never forget this. We had, you know, because we were young, we had never seen them yet. Like we hadn't like started going to the city to go to shows. Um, And they wrote back and their, their read on that question was not like, who is this dick making fun of us or whatever. Their read was like this adolescent girl finds it so hard to imagine that women can be in a band that she assumes we're drag queens. And so they wrote back and were like, dude, we are not drag queens. We are girls just like you. You should start a band, whatever. It was so intense and supportive. And I think about that a lot in this conversation because it's like, I understand the arguments that like, calling your zine women in sound or whatever is essentializing. But part of me also says there are all these cultural uh, messages still, they haven't ended, that are telling um, like non-male children 
these things are not options for you. And no matter how many different careers Barbie gets or whatever, like there are still these like kind of subtle passive reinforcements of like, this is just stuff that dudes do. Yeah. And so I don't, that's why I find it this real conflict because I don't know what the line is, you know, where it's like, when does it stop just being supportive and start being um, shitty? And I think just like the fact that we're thinking about it, I mean, it's it's a one hundred percent a cop out to say just the fact that we're thinking about it is enough. It's not enough, obviously, but I think it's like, I think it means we're on the right track that we're like weighing all these considerations. Yeah. Not that I'm in any position to judge. <laughs> no, it's it's true. It's true. And it's yeah. kind of overwhelming, like weighing those, cons- it's, those considerations can be a little overwhelming, which is yeah. why I think ultimately sometimes I just kind of shy away from taking it any further, but I don't know. Yeah, sometimes it's Questions like... Questions unanswered. Yeah, but then like sometimes that's where the plow ahead thing can just, you just like kind of just do it anyway, and yeah. like being willing to be accountable. Um, and again, like the stakes are pretty low like if if it turns out that the name of your zine was mildly offensive it's not it doesn't really matter that much like you can just be like oh my bad I'm gonna call it something else now <laughs> like and it doesn't detract from the value of the old issues yeah and yeah so I think that it's just cool that it's happening thank you yeah um does that feel good do you feel like that feels good. Good. Cool. Yeah. I, Do you feel good? I feel great. Okay. This was good. a great interview. Awesome. Look, chicks are wrong. Look, chicks are having fun. Look, chicks make lots of noise. We're rocking rolls, not just for boys. On the road and on the rag. We fucking roll, so we gotta work. Girls take off all the wolves on the game. Stand for pound and get out of the way. Stay away. Whoa. On the run, when the chicks are having fun, when the chicks make lots of noise, now you know rock and roll is not just for boys. This is serious, we can make you delirious, you should have a healthy fear of us, too much of us is dangerous. Uh, yeah, 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 you get it. Um, I shouldn't sing a lunatic song, but uh, I did, so, uh, you know, eat it. I guess uh, the actual thing to do here is to end the podcast, right? So um, thank you, first and foremost, to the Luna Chicks. Uh, thank you, second, to Madeline Campbell. Again, I'll put the link to the Women in Sound in the uh, podcast description. Um, thank you to Lakara Occulta for writing the theme song. And uh, that's it. This is good, and we're done. Uh, no cops, no creeps. Peace in the pizzeria.